Welcome to the Layman's Guide to the Lectionary with your host, Pastor Steve Andrews. In this week's readings, we are looking at Zechariah chapter 9, verses 9 through 12, Romans chapter 7, verses 14 through 25a, and then Matthew chapter 11, verses 25 through 30. So this is the fifth Sunday after Pentecost. We begin. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Today I declare that I will restore to you double. So we start out here, a little recap of the book of Zechariah up to this point. So the history, the context of this is Zechariah has been called by God to serve as his prophet. So he's one of our 12 minor prophets. And he serves the people of Judah after their return from exile. So God's people split in two. Israel and Judah became two separate countries. Israel is destroyed first. 140 years later, Judah is destroyed by the nation of Babylon. The people of Judah were led away in 587 BC into exile. They were carried off to the land of Babylon to live and to work there. And roughly 50 years later, Persia conquered Babylon. And we actually know it's something we have a pottery piece of. Um, the Cyrus Cylinder was unearthed probably 10 years ago. I don't know the exact time frame of that archaeological find, but we have it. It's not much bigger than a football. But on this stone cylinder, I mean, it is, it's round. Um, on this, it's written some of the history of the Persian king Cyrus. And it is noted on there that Cyrus had a habit when he entered into a new territory, when he conquered new land, that any of the slaves, any of the people that were living there who had been carried off by the previous nation, he would send them home. He would help them rebuild. Now, it's true they remain his subjects. So the, the, Jew, the Jews, the Judaites, they don't get to just go back and be them again. They're part of Persia now at this point, which is why when Persia is conquered and eventually by Greece and eventually then by Rome, uh, the Jews in the New Testament era are Roman citizens, or at least they're of Roman territory. So Cyrus sets them home, sends them home, and pays for them to rebuild the temple. And that gets you the context of this minor prophet Zechariah. He and Haggai both end up working uh, side by side here to help focus the people of Israel on the rebuilding of the temple. 
and not just the rebuilding of the temple, but also on the Messiah. Those would be the two major themes of the 12 chapters we have from Zechariah. The first eight chapters focused on kind of prophecies that were really past and present, conversations about about those, the temple and, and sin and, and those things. Chapters 9 through 12 are going to move you to dealing with the future, looking forward to the Messiah who is to come. And so this text that we had today that I just read for you, and we will get to see this weekend in church, this is part of that future prophecy of what is coming for God's people. And so we start here, verse 9, uh, with this double, O daughter of Jerusalem, celebration. Zion is another name interchangeably used for Jerusalem. Um, it seems like Zion was actually the name of a, a specific hill, but the names just came to be interchangeable at some point for the city itself. So some call Jerusalem Zion, uh, some Jerusalem, and sometimes they switch back and forth. Some people actually use both phrases, as you see here. Uh, so the reference is one and the same. Daughters of Zion, daughter of Jerusalem, that's the people of God, his children. Rejoice, shout aloud. Uh, they're celebrating. But the question is, what are they celebrating? That's what the next part of the verse answers. Celebrate because, and here we have the word behold, your king is coming. That's not their earthly king. It's not Cyrus. This is a reference to their Messiah, the one who would come and who would deliver them, the one who would save them from their sins. We're going to see more of that in the text ahead. So your king is coming. That is the cause for celebration among you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Righteous. This king that is coming, he's perfect. He's righteous. There's nothing ill in him. And he is bringing salvation with him. Now, that's an interesting phrase for the Jews at this time to be trying to unpack. Because, again, what just happened to them? They were just saved. Cyrus, whose name means king in the Persian tongue, Cyrus has just sent them home. He allowed them to return to their homeland. He even paid to help them rebuild God's temple. So they're not, they're not necessarily where they might want to be in terms of freedoms and things of that nature. But it's fair to ask exactly what more could they want right now? They just received such a wonderful gift that the Lord has worked through Cyrus to, to set them free and, and send them home. But there's still a promise, a promise of salvation, because there is something far greater than their exile in Babylon that they need to be saved from. And that's sin, death, and the devil. Let's see that a little bit more as we keep going through the text. So this king who is coming is righteous. He has salvation. He is humble and mounted on a donkey. So the humility is going to connect you to Philippians 2. 
uh, verses 5 through 11, Paul gives us this great discourse on Jesus' humility. Have this mind among yourselves that is yours in Christ Jesus, who did not consider himself, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but instead humbled himself. He emptied himself. He became a servant even to the point of death. So here's that humble idea. It's also a humble idea to ride on a colt instead of a full-grown animal. It's a lowly thing. Now, what exactly is this riding in about? Well, the practice of many military champions in history has been to ride a horse into the region that they just conquered. So you'd come to the city, you'd come to a capital, whatever it may be, and you would ride your horse into town. And so Jesus coming in as a king is going to ride, and instead of a horse, he chooses a donkey. That's the humility part again. He's going to ride into town. And he's not going to do it in the same exact way as the military conquerors because he's he's coming to save them from something else. So just an interesting connection there for you. If you've never heard that before uh, in connection to the triumphal entry, that's what's going on there. Verse 10, God will cut off. That is, he will destroy, he will remove the chariot from Ephraim. Now, Ephraim is one of the 12 tribes of Israel. Ephraim was actually a grandson of Israel. Uh, So Jacob, Israel, had 12 sons. And Levi does not get a tribal place, like a a land inheritance. The Levites are scattered amongst the rest of the the tribes because the the Levites are the priests, and so they're, they're spread out to be able to serve the people. And because of that, then, he's still got to keep the number at 12. So Jacob's favorite son, Joseph, his two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, both get allotted one of the 12 portions of land. So Ephraim is mentioned here. Um, It bordered Jerusalem. So Jerusalem was actually part of Joseph's little brother, Benjamin, uh, the second favorite son of Jacob. Uh, Benjamin actually would have controlled Jerusalem, that area. And it's the area just to the north of that that Ephraim controlled. So regardless, uh, the chariot was the mighty instrument of war at the time. I mean, this is might be the equivalent to talking about tanks today. Um, just a powerful machine as, as you got on and it was mounted by the rider and the, the horse carried it off into battle. It offered protection. It offered a swift strike. It intimidated. Uh, it, was a, it was a mighty weapon without a doubt. But those are gone. The war horses are gone from Jerusalem, the, the capital of God's people at that time. Uh, the battle bow shall be cut off. So we see all of these war weapons going away. This hopefully brings your mind to Matthew 26 in the Garden of Gethsemane, verse 52, after uh, the arrest of Jesus has begun. Peter draws his sword, cuts off the ear of Malchus, the servant, and Jesus rebukes him and tells him to put the sword away. Jesus did not come to fight an earthly war. 
He did not come to topple human governments. He even tells Pilate himself that he gave the Pilate's authority comes from God. So Jesus has given Pilate the authority. Jesus has given authority to any governing figure in this world. No matter how good or evil they may be. His kingdom is not of this world. And that's going to be ultimately the kingdom that we're looking at here in this section. His rule shall be from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. We are looking at something much bigger. The second coming of Christ. And that's that's reiterated by the line, he shall speak peace to the nations. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 34, Jesus tells us that he did not come to bring peace, but a sword. Now, remember that this word peace is talking about reconciliation between two parties. So you think of a war being fought between two nations. When the war ends, we talk about them being at peace. They are no longer fighting. Uh, It has been ended, usually by a peace treaty or by complete domination, I guess is the other option there. Jesus came not to bring peace among men. Jesus did not come so that you could be reconciled to the people around you. He came so that you could be reconciled to God. There's peace between God and man because of what Jesus has done. So Jesus will speak peace. But it's not an earthly peace. This is a a second coming, everlasting kingdom kind of peace that we will forever have with the Lord. And it extends to the ends of the earth. That's Jesus in Acts chapter 1 verse 8 as he's speaking to his disciples just before ascending into heaven. He tells them to, to go. They will be, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. The Lord's kingdom is for all. It is not just for the the returning exiles here that we're looking at in Zechariah 9. And then in verse 11, we have this reference to the covenant, the blood of the covenant that God had made with his people. This is going to be both a reference to the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. So the Old Covenant that God made with his people, um, we see that, for example, with Abraham, Genesis 12, 15, 17, kind of in those chapters. God will be their God, and they will be his people. But God puts Abram to sleep. So a covenant is made, it's cut in blood. And the parties who make the covenant with each other, who are cutting this covenant, they will they will kill, they will sacrifice animals, the blood will be spilled, and they'll walk in the, the blood together. And that's the way of, of bonding this, this deal. So it's a lot stronger than a promise, a pinky promise, a spit shake, um, a, a legal binding contract, anything like that. This is significantly stronger. This is as strong as a bond as you can have. It has been made in blood, and so to break a covenant requires the shedding of blood. If you break the covenant, your blood is required. And so God's people broke the covenant. But because God had put Abraham to sleep, and Abraham had never actually walked through the blood, only the blood of one will suffice. 
only the blood of God himself. And this brings us to what Jesus does for you and for me on Good Friday. It's what he's teaching to his disciples on Maundy Thursday at the Last Supper as he's giving them his body and blood to eat and to drink for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus' new covenant that he makes with them there, again, Matthew chapter 26, is the blood price to close off the old covenant. But it is also the shedding of blood required to start a new covenant. Just an interesting way for you to consider some some biblical history that you're already familiar with, but maybe you hadn't put it all together. So because of my covenant, my the blood of my covenant with you, because of Jesus, this is we have this even in our, our confession and absolution. We hear that Almighty God has given his only son to die for you and for his sake, forgives you of all your sins. Jesus has already died. He has already suffered and died to forgive you of your sins. What good would it do now to withhold that forgiveness from you? For the sake of Jesus, so that his sacrifice was not in vain, God the Father shares that forgiveness with you and with me. And so here we have that that idea. It's right here. Because of the blood of my covenant with you, because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ for you, because you are my people and I am your God, I will set your prisoners free. That brings us back to what we were talking about before. What more could the Judaites want? Cyrus has already set them free. So what is this setting them free from? What is this waterless pit? That waterless phrase there uh, likely just denotes the idea of suffering, um, being locked in a pit, trapped as a prisoner, and you don't have any water. Your body is decaying as it doesn't have the nourishments to survive. That is this, this world of death in which we live now. We are in a waterless pit. As we are stuck in our sin, surrounded by death, and tormented by the devil. God will set us free from this pit. He will set us free from our despair and our hopelessness. Verse 12, return, it's the same Hebrew word, shuv, uh, that we also use to repent, to turn away, to return. That's what it means to repent. So you turn away from one thing, you turn to something else. You can literally try it wherever you're sitting right now. You're facing something. Repent from that thing. Turn away. Turn turn away from that thing. And now you're facing something else. So that is with our sin. We repent of our sin. We turn away from our sin and we turn toward God. Here, God is calling them to repent, to return to your stronghold. Christians, what is our stronghold? It is none other than God himself. That's Psalm 18.2 as one particular example of that, um, which is also coming up kind of in our, our readings soon for us. But the idea of, of Psalm 18 is, is that God is my rock, he is my fortress, my strength, he is my stronghold. 
a stronghold, as a fortified position, a defensible position, something that cannot be overtaken. God is your stronghold. Return to your stronghold. You will not be overcome. The enemy cannot defeat you because God is your stronghold and the enemy cannot break God. This is more than go home to Jerusalem, rebuild your city, rebuild the walls around the city, rebuild your temple. No, this is God is my fortress. God is my stronghold. Prisoners of hope. Hope is a wonderful word, pointing us to the, the idea that God keeps his promises. And this is what your hope is in. I mean, that, literally, that is what your hope is in, is that the Lord will keep his promises to you. He has, pro he has promised to forgive you. He has promised to rescue you. He has promised to redeem you. He has promised he is preparing a place for you. He has promised a new heaven and a new earth. He has promised a life that never ends. He has promised that that place will have no suffering or pain or death. He has promised that he will be there with us forevermore. I mean, these things are where our hope is. And it's not the worldly hope of, oh, you know, I, I sure hope that uh, my football team wins this weekend. That's out of your control. There is no promise connected to it. But that's the way we worldly hope in things. It is not the hope of Scripture. It is not the hope that we have in Christ. Our hope is rooted in promises that have already been made and will be kept. The Christian hope is certain. It is sure. It is fixed because it points us to the stronghold that our Lord is. Lastly, with this Zechariah text, God declares that he will restore to us double. Perhaps the easiest way to interpret that is the idea that what is gained is better than what is lost. Whatever we have suffered in this place, whatever we have endured in this place, God will restore to us in paradise something even greater as he restores us to himself. Then for our epistle text, we're looking at Romans chapter 7 verses 14 through 25a. And this is where we get the Bible's tongue twister. Uh, that phrase that if you memorize it, you try and speak it so many times fast because it's just, you stumble over your words. Um, but we have that from Paul in verse 15, 16. So we're going to look at that, talk about that a little bit. It gets into the idea of original sin and our sinful nature as, as God's people and what, what role the law has to play in all of this. It's broken into two paragraphs. So we'll take verses 14 to 21st, and then we'll re- uh, we'll resume and finish this study with 21 through 25. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. 
For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So you can see how you might stumble across some of those words there. As you try and repeat them quickly. We're coming off of the section of this epistle where Paul really had broken down quite distinctly that we were once slaves to sin, but Christ has redeemed us from that. He has rescued us from our slavery to sin, and we are now actually slaves of Christ. So this idea in the first verse, verse 14, that we are sold under sin, that Paul was sold under sin, this is a reference to original sin. It's a reference back to the idea that we were slaves of sin in this world. And we would agree with him on verse 15. I do not understand my own actions. My fellow Christians, how many of you have had that thought? How many of you resonate with Paul's words here? You know the good things that the Lord has placed before you. You know his law. You know his commandments. You know that you're supposed to love him. You know you're supposed to love your neighbor. You know you're supposed to go to church. You know you're supposed to read your Bible. You know you're supposed to pray. You know you're supposed to always speak well of others. You know you're supposed to honor your parents. You know you shouldn't. Um, harm your neighbor. You know you shouldn't take things from them. We know the good that the Lord has put in front of us. And yet, how good are we at actually accomplishing it? Instead, we stumble. We fall. We trip over ourselves. We, we end up sleeping in on Sunday morning and then feeling rotten because we miss church. We say we're going to read our Bible, and then life just got busy, and I I just couldn't find the time. We say we're going to spend our time in prayer, and we forget. These things happen again and again and again. We understand what Paul is saying. We understand what he means when he says he doesn't understand his own actions, because we don't understand our own actions. This is our sinful nature. This is the wrestling that we have. I do not do what I want. That's God's will. Paul wants to do the Lord's will. And he says, I do not do it. But he ends up doing the things he hates, which are the sins that he knows he's not supposed to do, the things he knows he's not supposed to commit. This is that wrestling. This is that sinful nature. And this is really a rebuke of anyone who teaches you the idea that you can somehow achieve perfection here and now in this life. I mean, admittedly, as a church, we tend to put Paul up on a pedestal. And that's probably something we shouldn't be doing. Um, but, But he's one of the best preachers we've ever known. He's one of the best evangelists we've ever known. He's one of the best church planters we've ever known. And so we look up to him. We see him as this wonderful brother in Christ whose gifts to the church 
the spirit working through him have just been incredible. And yeah, look at how he looks at himself. Paul, Paul admits he never achieved it. In fact, reading this, it sounds like Paul would say he never even got anywhere close to achieving earthly perfection of avoiding sin. Instead, it was always with him. It was always plaguing him. We have that movement within, for example, the Methodist church bodies, some of them. There's a holiness movement. And, and John Wesley, who founded that movement, had made the case that you could become perfect in this life. That you could reach that and achieve that. And asked about it on his deathbed, he said he still believed it was possible, but he hadn't gotten there. I surely pray, I truly hope that when we get to paradise someday, we see John. We want everybody to be there. The more the, more the merrier, quite literally, is we'll all be with God in paradise, whoever's there. It matters not how wicked they were here. I am wicked here. You are wicked here. All of us in the eyes of God have been wicked here. You know, we have our idea in our mind of, of some sins are worse than others. It's not really the biblical picture of things. I mean, you could pick any one of your sins. Just pick one of them. And it would be enough to send you to hell. So that lie you told when you were in first grade? Assuming you only told one. That one lie would be good enough to send you to hell. Because you have rejected a perfect God. His perfection demands your perfection. And you didn't live up to it. So you're done. And really, truly, we were sold into sin and we were sold under sin with the idea of original sin is that we have been sinful from the moment we were even conceived. We did not start, if you want to phrase it this way, we did not start pointed to God because of the sin of our parents before us. We started pointed to sin. And it is only by God's grace that he has brought us back to himself. That's the picture that we're getting here. Paul is not perfect. Well, he is now, as he is resting with our Lord Jesus Christ. And he's waiting for the resurrection on the last day when you and I get to join him in paradise. But Paul is a sinner. He's not afraid to admit it. In fact, in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, as Paul is talking about that idea that Christ Jesus came to save sinners, he admits in that moment, that he is the foremost among them. It's almost the opposite of humility. That's beating himself down so much. It's, it's like, I, I'm a bigger sinner than you are. I don't know that we want to make it quite like that, but it, it almost sounds that way. The good I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. All right, verses 21 to 25. 
So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So what we have here is the continuation of what we were just talking about. But what we begin 21 with is not the law. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, this is not referring to the law of God. This is referring to more of a law of observation. Paul has noticed that whenever it is that he wants to serve the Lord, evil's lying right there beside him. This is just what happens in the world, in my flesh, in my sinfulness. Even when I want to do the right thing, sinful temptations are right there beside me anyway. And then this verse and the next verses, he's going to really put together this contrast between two laws, the law of, of sin and the law of God. The law of sin is from inside, sorry, the law of of God is inside in the inner being, which you could talk about as being the soul. The law of sin is ruling over his flesh, over his members, um, so his arms, his ears, you know, his, his tongue, his feet, the things that he physically has to use, which he should use to serve the Lord. And we know that he did, but in his own sinful nature, he's struggling with this. To the point where he declares, wretched man that I am. And I have to sit right here and say, me too. Wretched man that I am. You know, the church doesn't know my sins. I think that goes for most of us. We're, we're pretty good as Americans at keeping things private, keeping things quiet being individuals and not wanting to be a community together. And so the things that, that I struggle with are different than the things that you may struggle with. But even in that, we don't know what one another is struggling with, which is dangerous for the church as well. But anyway, wretched man that I am, I'm a terrible sinner, and I know it. Who will deliver me? I can join Paul in that question. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Who will deliver me from the reign of sin? And the answer is right there. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. He has redeemed me. He has redeemed you. He's done this already for us in Jesus Christ. Now, our gospel text for the day is from Matthew chapter 11. It's verses 25 through 30. Before we read it this time, we're going to do the context first. Matthew, the gospel of Matthew is, is the account that Matthew gives to us, one of the 12 disciples of Jesus' time on earth. 
what did his earthly ministry look like? What did he do? What did he come to do? And we learn very quickly in that gospel account uh, from the naming of Jesus. His very name means he saves. Uh, and the angel of pronouncing that says to Joseph and Mary, you will name him Jesus because he will save his people from his, their sins. And so that's part of it. And another part of it is that Jesus has come to bring about the kingdom of God. He's come to restore God's reign over his creation. It's the message we get from John the Baptist in three, three, chapter 3, verse 2. It's the message we hear Jesus preach in chapter 4, verse 17, in his first sermon in the gospel account. Repent. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And in chapter 9, when Jesus is sending out the 12, at the end of 9 and at the beginning of 10, when he's sending out the 12 disciples to do the mission work of the kingdom, same message that they get. Go and preach. The kingdom of God has come near. The kingdom of heaven has come near. So this has been the overwhelming theme. And so as Jesus sends out the disciples, Jesus then goes out himself again, and he goes traveling from city to city in chapter 11, preaching, teaching, doing miracles. And he now, just before our text that we have today, he had just denounced all of those cities that he had done those miracles in for refusing to repent and instead clinging to their earthly lives. And so we get a prayer from Jesus. And he says, At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light." That idea is your connection piece. Why do we have the Zechariah reading um, with this particular gospel reading? Why are they paired together? Well, Jesus is the one who brought that salvation. Zechariah was prophesying before in the Old Testament. And as we see that God would set the prisoners free from the waterless pit, he would bring them to a stronghold, they would have hope, they would be restored double, it's all that salvation language, and we come to the New Testament, we come to this gospel reading, and Jesus calls to him those who are, have labored, those who are heavy laden, and he will give them rest. And that's going to be a salvation reference itself. There's your connection, uh, really, between these two texts. As we look at this, Jesus speaking, I thank you, Father. So he, he directs this as a prayer, speaking to God the Father in heaven. And includes that title of praise and of respect, calling the Father the Lord of heaven and earth. Then he acknowledges what the Father has done. You have hidden these things. 
it's a good contextual clue. What are these things? What is Jesus referring to? He's referring to the miracles. He's referring to the work that he and the disciples have been doing. That the Lord has chosen to hide these things from the wise of this world. This is a theme we see in a couple other places in Scripture easily. Uh, I didn't look hard to see if I could find it elsewhere, but with how easy it was to find a couple, I'm sure it's somewhere else as well. So Isaiah 29, 14 is one example of this, where we learn that the wisdom of the wise shall perish, and the discernment of the discerning will be destroyed. In 1 Corinthians chapters 1 and 2, really this is kind of the major theme at that point. Uh, in addition to the idea that that letter is written about divisions, the, the major theme at the beginning that Paul is unpacking with them is this idea that God did not call those who are high in this world. He called the lowly. He called the humble to himself. The wisdom of God in that text, well, actually it's the foolishness of God, is, is wiser than the wisdom of men. And then we learn that the foolishness of God is none other than the cross. It is in God's foolishness that he has saved us. He laid down his own life to save us. And so Jesus is thanking the Lord for hiding these things from the wise and the understanding and instead revealing them to little ones, little children. This is actually not a reference to tiny children. I think of all the children that I have in my home. And the Lord certainly does work with them. The Lord's word speaks to them, creates faith in them through the Holy Spirit. Baptism can be that, that entry point into the kingdom as well. Uh, for a young child, and, and that's a wonderful thing to rejoice in, but this is not actually a reference to little children. If you turn back less than a chapter, the very end of chapter 10, Jesus is speaking at that point to his disciples. It's the end of him sending them out, and he says, whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple Truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. Jesus is sending out his disciples into all the cities, all the towns, all the villages, and they're not to take anything with them, but instead rely upon the, the gratitude of people hearing the gospel. So if you give a cup of cold water to one of these disciples, it means you were willing to listen to them. You were willing to hear the gospel from them, this good news of Jesus bringing about the kingdom of God. These are the little ones. These are the little children of this verse as well. You think of their occupations. Jesus didn't call kings to follow himself. Jesus didn't call the wealthy to follow himself. The vast majority of the twelve are poor fishermen. They're not highly educated. They're not in places of honor in their culture. 
they get out on a boat, they set sail into the sea, and they cast nets all day, trying to catch whatever they can catch so that they can put a, a piece of bread on the table for their own family, together with one of the fish they caught, presumably. God chose whom he chose. He chose the sinners and the tax collectors and the prostitutes. He chose the sick and the demon-possessed and the blind and the mute and the paralyzed. He chose the weak of this world in order to reveal his strength. And Jesus says, such was your gracious will. Admittedly, the will of God is beyond our understanding. So be cautious with that. Don't try to look into the will of God. We can't accomplish that. Um, thankfully, he does at times reveal his will to us. And when he does that, we rejoice as his people. We rejoice that he has given us Christ. We rejoice that he has given us forgiveness. We rejoice that he has given us his word. We rejoice in the sacraments which bring forgiveness and, and strength and faith. But for the most part, God's will is hidden. And that's for our own good. Remember that God is infinite and you are finite. My little brain cannot contain all that God knows. Not possible for me. It is the gracious will of God that he chose these little children, these disciples, to be the ones who would get to bear the good news rather than the wise of this world. Now it is true that the wise of this world have the tendency of rejecting the Lord. We're seeing this in post-enlightenment Western cultures. The more time someone spends in academia, the, the higher up the academic ladder they climb, the more likely it is that they cast off their faith. It is a matter of pride opposed to humility. The more we think that we know, the more we think that we can do this on our own, the more we've made ourselves into an idol or our knowledge into an idol or the, the skills, the work of our hands into an idol. So there's some truth to these things. Verse 27, we learn that all things have been handed over to Jesus by his Father. Jesus has authority over all things. We see this elsewhere in Scripture too. We see it at the end. Um, in Matthew 28, as Jesus sends out the, the disciples again, this time with the Great Commission, that they should go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. Before he said that, he mentioned that all authority in heaven and on earth had been given to him. We're going to see it later on in God's Word, too, in 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul has another 
kind of almost tongue twister section saying that all things have been subjected under Jesus with the exception of the one who subjected all things to Jesus, that would be God the Father. Um, he has not subjected himself to Jesus. So all authority given to Jesus as king over his creation, the kingdom of heaven has come near. Hand in hand here in 27. To know the Son is to know the Father. To know the Father is to know the Son. You don't get to know the Father unless you know the Son. Because the Son will reveal him to you. And it's via that gracious will we heard about before. It is the, the grace of God that he would choose to reveal himself to us. It is the grace of God that he would make himself known to us. Actually, we have an entire church season that celebrates this. This is the season of Epiphany. Epiphanos is the Greek word uh, of revelation, something being revealed. Uh, phino is the Greek word for shine or to make appear, and epi is upon, so to shine light upon something, to make it appear, to make it known. That is what it means to reveal. You're making something known. And so Jesus reveals the Father to us. Jesus reveals himself to us. Jesus reveals the kingdom to us. And that's what Epiphany celebrates. The season of Epiphany celebrates the revelation of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles. And it's why the, the gospel reading that day is when you hear about the Magi. The three, well, the however many magi that came bringing gifts to baby Jesus of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Verse 28 we are invited. The Lord beckons us home. We saw that with our Old Testament reading, didn't we? Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. We're being invited to return home. We're being invited to return to our stronghold, to the Lord, the one who protects and provides and cares for us. Now, all who labor and are heavy laden, that's all sinners. We are all laboring. We are all heavy laden under the burden of our sin. We are all laboring to somehow save ourselves from sin, death, and the devil. And you look around you. Look at your neighbors who aren't Christians and look at their lives. To what extent are we willing to try to pro prolong our life? We will take someone out of their home who's already at an elderly age and we will lock them up in a facility strapped to machines trying to prolong their life for years on end. We labor to save ourselves by our achievements, by our technology, even our own relationships. We, we are looking to save ourselves and we simply cannot. And that is why Jesus says, come to me and I will give you rest. 
Jesus does the work. Jesus has done the work. You can't save yourself. No matter how hard you try, no matter how many advancements we make as a culture, the reality is the reality, and it is staring you in the face. You will die. That is the consequence of our sins. We, we die because we sin. That was Romans 5 a couple of weeks ago from Paul. But Jesus gives us rest. He has done the work for us. And so he calls us to take upon ourselves his yoke. Now that's an interesting phrase. A yoke is a, a farming tool. It's a wooden bar that you would stretch across a couple of animals. So maybe a couple of horses, a couple of oxen. Uh, you would place it upon them and it basically goes around over their shoulders or around their neck. It, it bonds them to each other so that they can pull as a team, so that they can do the work as a team. Now, the part that I wanted you to latch on to, pun not intended, in that statement was the wooden beam. Take my yoke upon you. Take my cross upon you. Jesus earlier, one chapter before, whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Here Jesus is inviting us to take his cross upon himself. Take my yoke, take my labor, take my burden, take what I have done, take that upon yourself. Rest in Christ. You are saved in Christ. Learn from him. That brings us to the Mary-Martha distinction, as Martha wanted to do all the labor, and Mary just sat at Jesus' feet, and she listened to his every word. I am gentle, lowly in heart. It's that humility thing again. And you will find rest for your souls. And it's not just your soul, because your soul and your body on the last day will be reunited. They will be glorified, and they will live forever. So... The rest is for your soul, yes, but it's for all of you, body and soul. My yoke is easy, my burden is light. It's a wonderful little phrase. Easy to misconstrue, though. My yoke, again, that gets back to Jesus on the cross. It's easy. There's nothing for you to do. Put on this yoke. Put on Christ's cross. Put on Christ's righteousness. He has earned your salvation for you, sinner. Foremost of sinners, chief of sinners, Paul. Me. Paul's my middle name. Stephen Paul. My yoke is easy. My cross is upon you. My salvation is upon you. My burden is light. The load expected of us because we are in Christ in order to save ourselves is light because Christ has done it. Christ has carried it for us. The way we could easily mis misunderstand verse 30 is to try and think it applies to life right now. 
And that's the opposite of what Jesus has told us back in chapter 10. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. I did not come to bring peace, but I came to bring a sword. You will be dragged before kings as a witness on my account. Jesus predicted suffering for his disciples. So this verse 30 is not an earthly peace. It's not peace now. It's not easy living now. It's not about worldly life and worldly things. It's about the bigger picture of it all. It's about the salvation that you have in Jesus Christ. It is about the free gift that you have through him and what he has already done for you. So a beautiful gospel to conclude our time together this week. The Lord be with you, and may you find his burden light. Amen. Oh.